Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Roland Leggett. Roland is a nationally recognized movement leader with over two decades of social justice advocacy and management experience. He grew up in Auburn Hills, a suburb of Detroit, but came to love the city when he visited his grandmother. Her house was in Detroit's historic Boston Edison neighborhood. In the summertime, he'd come down and spend the summer with her. They would visit all the museums and Belle Isle with its aquariums and the state fair. After leaving Wayne State University in Detroit, He felt burned out from juggling school, work, and internships. So he moved to Chicago for the summer to decompress and ended up staying there for four years. Living in Chicago, he volunteered on and off, but when he worked for Obama for America, it really whetted his appetite for organizing. He couldn't think of anywhere else he'd rather be working in that capacity than back home in Detroit. After returning to Detroit, he worked as an organizer with Obama for America, with the Detroit branch of ACLU, Equality Michigan, Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition, Working America, and My Time to Care. He's quite the outspoken LGBTQ advocate. His consultancy, Roland Leggett Strategies, talks about building inclusive communities and making the tradition from artists to activists right here in Detroit. Why Detroit? Roland believes it's because there's unlimited potential for innovation here. If you're dedicated, if you're responsible, and if you're thoughtful in the way you plan things, you can make incredible things happen here in Detroit. So it's no surprise that he brought his formidable skills to MoGo Detroit. MoGo is Detroit's first public bike sharing system with 430 bikes at 44 stations across 10 Detroit neighborhoods. Designed for quick trips around town, MoGo provides affordable, flexible, and convenient transportation for residents, visitors, and students. Roland, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, and, you, and you've just about got it. You know, when I think of you, I think of nothing else but the French martini, which you introduced <laughs> me to. But you know what else I think about? What's you are that? by far one of the most dapper individuals I know. I mean, every, oh. time, every time I see you, I go like, darn, I like what he's got on. <laughs> you know, but, you know <laughs> I mean, you. it's just like. You know, you've got your own unique style, 
and it just sort of flows with you, you know. It's like you come in a room and it's like, well, what's he got to talk about? And, I mean, you know, it says a lot about you and who you are. And then, of course, there's the French martini. You know, it just doesn't yes. get better than that. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Well, thank you so much. That's so kind. Mm-hmm. So how did you – okay, and, and, you know, and I have to ask, how did you discover the French martini? Um, honestly, and, you know, it's funny. I don't think she even drinks anymore, honestly. Um, but the deputy director of the ACLU, Retta Elmer, mm-hmm. she's the one that rescued me from um, – poor alcohol choices uh, (laughs) from college where she's like, you know, you need to start drinking like a grown-up and, you know, have something with a little bit of a flair to it. So I think she was the first person that ever introduced you to it. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure. Uh, But I don't think she uh even drinks anymore. But she has excellent taste, so it, like, doesn't matter. She just, you know, knew. So, Uh yeah. So thank you. Next time you see her, thank Renna. I will. I will. For uh, a number of uh, vulnerable communities, but, you know, she's also done incredible work for my social life by giving me <laughs> that great drink. Okay. Oh, that's, that's great. You know, I love the part that, you know, it was those visits to your, to your grandmas. Because I tell you, when I think about Detroit, the things that, that often like sort of when I was doing my outside studies when I was supposed to be in school, I was hitting the museums. I love the Belle Isle Aquarium. And that those are the things that really sort of captured your heart about Detroit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, uh, I'm really fortunate to have come from, uh, to have had the, the family that I, to have the family that I have, frankly, um, because uh, they were so intentional in so many ways in the way I, in which I was raised. And one of those things is, you know, my grandmother, my mother, my father really wanted me to as, as best they could have an understanding of how big the world was. And, you know, one of the things that we have here in Detroit that is so unique to this space is it's so multicultural and dynamic. And, you know, those words are often overused, but we have the receipts here. <laughs> um, mm-hmm, when it comes mm-hmm. to, you know, our, our dynamic history when it comes to music, arts, um, you know, and the fact that we built the, the middle class here, it, it just really... Uh, they wanted me to have an understanding of that, of that power in that space. And um, my, I remember my mother once telling me that one of the reasons that they took me to so many museums and on so many trips when I was younger is because when I was a man, they wanted me to feel comfortable in any room. And so um, that's actually something that I've, I have two children. I have two daughters. And so that's something that, um, that their other father and I that's a big value for us too, is ensuring that 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 these two uh, young ladies, when they become women one day, will feel comfortable in any room. And that started that kind of idea for me started with my grandmother and my family. You know, and I think that that's so important because you know I was talking to someone about Detroit, and they were talking about all the stuff that's brand new. But like you know, but like you said, I mean. The Boston Edison area, I mean, it has a history in and of itself. We also have, yes. like, Indian Village, which has a big N history in and of itself. And, you know, I, knew, I know people who are here who didn't know the history behind the Diego Rivera, you know, museum. But I've had people come from as far away as London yeah. specifically to see that. We have such a rich history. Yeah, we do. We do, and I think that what it's a history of innovation, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so um, 
you know, not only is it a, a rich history that is interesting, but it's a history that points to the future and often always has. And so, you know, when I think of Detroit, it's, of course, I have many fond memories here, but it's really a city um, that's about what, about building towards the future. And so that's one of the things I find most exciting about it. Do you feel like it's like, you know, because we had a time when, you know, particularly the African-American community, we could only live in certain areas. And then, you know, as we became more upwardly mobile, you know, we moved out, you know, we moved out further and further. And, you know, the suburbs wasn't, you know, the, the place, a no man's land. Where we, did. we do live in the suburbs. But the fact that you had that, you know, that the formative years were coming back into the city and then you've gone away, you know, you mm-hmm. went to school, you went away to Chicago, you've been involved. And now to see all the things that are happening in Detroit, but to still see, you know, the Boston Edison area, Indian Village, Corktown, Mexican Town, and what's happening in Midtown. Do you think, like, in some ways, for you even, it's come, like, full circle? Um, I would say no, honestly, Michelle, and I'll, and I'll tell you mm-hmm. why. So my, um, my grandmother, so, you know, I've been working in advocacy and uh, – and social justice for a long time now. And mm-hmm. um, I got my start by uh, my grandmother, actually most of the folks in my family, my, my immediate family, went to the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama mm. for college, which is a historically black co- uh, college for, the, uh, for your listeners that aren't familiar. And uh, there was an alumni association that was based here that had a scholarship program. And so when I was like maybe like seven years old, my grandmother started having me volunteer with her um, for, to, to raise money for this uh, scholarship fund. We'd go to the Grand Prix and help them work their tents. And I did a lot of my, my mother and my grandmother are Delta Sigma Thetas, which is, for your listeners that don't know, historically black uh, uh, sorority. Um, and they mm-hmm. did a lot of work with ed- around education and scholarships too. And I'm saying that to say that, you know, that's how I got my start, you know, 30 plus years ago at this point uh, doing this work. And it is incredible to see, yes, the, the economic development that's happening in uh, downtown Detroit. Um, but I have to say that my children also went to, to Detroit public schools until very recently, and that the water in their schools uh, mm-hmm. had lead deposits in it, and so they were actually forced to drink water bottles. Uh, when the school ran out of money for that, some of the parents had to chip in and throw in water bottles. And so I see a lot of work that has yet to be done, and... You know, I, I want us to certainly celebrate the successes that we have seen here in the city. Is it, you know, for those, uh, for the folks uh, that are listening that haven't been here recently, it's a total sea change downtown. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really incredible to see all the changes that have happened, but I'd urge people to remember that the most vulnerable people in this city remain vulnerable, and in some cases they're more vulnerable than ever because of all the changes that have been happening and we have a responsibility to make sure that those folks are brought along with us as we mm-hmm. uh, come out of the economic challenges that we've seen here in the past. Well, you know, you have, like I said, and also when I met you, you were involved in advocacy. I believe when I met you, you were at the ACLU. And, you know, yes. and um, you did ACLU, you've done, okay, and we know what ACLU, I mean, covers such a gamut of things. Equality Michigan when you think of Equality Michigan, you know, fighting for LGBTQ rights, the Environmental Justice Coalition, you know, Working for America, all of these paths that you came really 
would make it where you would have a lens to see these things that are happening in Detroit that you just discussed. Because, you know, yeah. many people see what's shiny and new, but you've, you've got this history where you see so you can see how far we've come, but you see how far we've yet to go. Yes, yes. And I think it's important, again, as I said, it's important just for us to celebrate our successes. So, you know, I think so many times when people have these conversations, it can become really polarized. So either everything's great or everything's awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just more complicated mm-hmm. than that. There's a lot of gray. So there's a lot of positive changes that have happened uh, here in the city. You know, the, the bike share program here that I work for is a really great example of that. Lisa Nuskowski, our executive director, is uh, a pragmatist, but she is uh-huh. a social justice activist first. And so, of uh-huh. course, she's interested and in, in, in focused on maintaining uh, a, uh, uh, you know, best-in-class bike system here. Um, but she's really focused as well on figuring out how to connect the folks that are economically isolated and racially isolated uh, to bike share, which is a really great mechanism to address issues related to transit, community health and wellness, all those things. And so, you know, it's that type of approach that I'm looking for in terms of Mm -hmm. the development that happens here in the city where we're not only focused on the numbers in terms of, you know, economics or focused on, uh, you know, frankly, superficially how much better things might look in a certain area, but ensuring that people that are most vulnerable here have access uh, to what's happening is incredibly important. Now, you're also, and you touched on it briefly, I mean, besides being dapper and, you know, the, the, the spokesperson for the French Martini, you're a dad. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're a dad. And like you said, you sent your kids up until recent to public schools where, you know, many people, oh, we've got to find it. You have... You know, you're walking the walk and you're talking the talk. You are taking the lessons that you learned and, you know, trying to to impart a lot of that knowledge to your daughters. What's different? What do you see? I know. You know, and and (laughs) what what do you find that's most important that you got from your childhood that you really, really, really are trying to make sure that they get? Because it's a different city, it's a different time, but there's a lesson that you got from those summers with your grandmother, from that time with your parents, from the, from the volunteering, what are you trying to get with them without, like, beating them over the head? And you will do this. Although, yeah, you can yeah. do that, too, you know, because if we're parents, we can do that. Yes. So, uh-huh. Kind of the main thing, I, you know, I'd say it's a two-parter, if that's okay. Um, uh-huh. I, I touched on it earlier, so feeling comfortable in any space was really important uh, to uh, uh, Matthew, uh, my my uh, daughter's other father and I, quick mm-hmm. story uh, related to that. Um, so uh, we were able to actually go to the LGBT reception at the White House in 2013, mm-hmm. I want to say. Um, we were together at the time. We've since separated. And I remember we had a conversation in the East Room about, you know, when we have kids one day, we have to bring them back here. And, you know, we, we ended up becoming parents faster than I anticipated. And... Um, I think I, I, we, were, we, were, we were able to take the girls to the Easter egg roll in 2015 at the White House. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that I was relieved that I was able to do that for them on many levels. It meant a lot to me to have um, a man of color in the, in, the, in the Oval Office as president, obviously. But it meant a lot to me that my children would feel comfortable at the White House so early 
because it said to me, okay, they will be, um, you know, we're setting them up to be comfortable in any space from now on because they've been mm-hmm. in the White House. So, you know, what else can you, what else can you do? So, you know, raising dynamic women that are comfortable in any space is incredibly important, as I said earlier. And then secondly, I would say that your voice, really instilling to them that their voice matters. It always matters. And there's a way to communicate what you have to communicate, but your opinion always matters. Even when you're a child, your opinion matters. Um, one more story. I, had a, I was talking to my oldest. She knew I was talking about her right now. She'd be so mad at me, Michelle. Oh, my She's a very private person. Uh-huh. Nobody tell her. But um, <laughs> we were having a conversation a couple of years ago, and she was frustrated. I think she was like in like maybe seventh grade or something. And she was frustrated about, you know, adults telling her what to do. Da, 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 da. And so I said to her uh, in that conversation, I said, you know, you are your child. And so there's a lot of adults telling you just to listen and do what you're told to do. And a lot of people will tell you because you're a child that you should just go along with that. I said, I'm going to tell you a little secret. I want you to hold on to that desire that you have to make your own decisions. Understand that because of who, you, how old you are, you're going to have to go along to get along. You're going to have to listen to what people have to say to you. But if you don't like being told what to do, that doesn't mean you rebel. That doesn't mean you're disrespectful. It means you own your own business when you're older. That means you're your own okay. boss. If you want your own space to make your own choices, then let's just build that. But you know, so it, it, uh, that was a really big deal for me to be able to tell my. I think she was like 12 or 13 at the time. Uh, year old that, you know, your voice really, really matters. And if you feel like you're not being heard, if you feel like, um, you know, there's a direction you want to go in, you don't have the resources to go into that direction in the space that you're in. It's not about pushing back in a way that is not uh, uh, beneficial or productive. Uh It's about owning your own space. Like, you know what, I need to be in charge. I need to be my own boss. Um, so I'm going to start my own business or I'm going to do my own thing. I really wanted to, her to understand that her voice was important. She had the power to, uh, to move that, whatever her vision was, forward. Now, you know, before we – I mean, I'm going to get back on you, but I want to ask you a question. In this era of Mute R. Kelly, Me Too, Believe Survivors, and particularly when we know, in fact, I had talked to someone, I know that, you know, London Bell, and she talked about, she was talking about the year of the girl, and she talked about how girls in urban areas, girls across the diaspora, it's not safe sometimes just for them going back and forth to school. Yeah. What, as a father, have you said to your daughters, and and, and how... Is a lot of what the work you do geared towards providing that safe world really for them as well as for everyone else, but especially how does that drive you? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, I think a lot about that, uh, the work I'm doing and how that will affect the world that they will exist in. I'd say um, one of the main things I do, and I know that uh, Matthew does as well, is own our maleness uh, in the sense that, you know, there's not, a, there's not, it's important that we talk about these things with our daughters, but it's also important that we do certain things. So specifically, 
my oldest daughter, again, don't, no one tell her I, I'm talking about this because she's going to get really upset. But mm-hmm. my, she's just not a touchy-feely person. Mm-hmm. And some of us just aren't, you know, just not that touchy-feely. I see you, Michelle, every time I see you, we, you know, we, we give each other a hug. It's not everybody's thing. And mm-hmm. so we're, it's, we've really instilled into our girls that, like, your physical space is your physical space. There's no such thing as an expectation around how you're supposed to behave physically. If you don't want to give somebody a hug, don't hug them. I get, like, quarterly hugs from my oldest daughter. She's just not into it. So <laughs> uh-huh. she's not into it. And so we fist bump. You know, we show up affection in other ways. But, you know, there's a way that I can let my child know that I love her, I see her, um, I believe in her, without expecting her to press her body against mine. Uh-huh. And so I think that instilling in, in young girls uh, from an early age that their own physical space is their space, that you are not required to do something that you do not want to do physically ever <laughs> um, uh-huh. other, than, other than pay taxes. Uh, <laughs> but uh-huh. uh, in all seriousness, you know, I, that's incredibly important. And I think that as adults, we can get really caught up in catchphrases. So like, you know, me too has a lot of resonance I'm sure Michelle between you and I and a lot of your listeners, but you know, young girls just really also need to understand that like you're not to be touched at all if you were not Thank you, you. Don't, if, it, if it's unwanted and there's no hashtag for that that was a lot of that was a lot of characters but just you're not to be touched if, you, if that's not what you want and that your voice matters um and you know not everyone um not everyone has twitter or has the same access or resources that we do not everyone you know has uh has read Sheryl Sandberg's book lean in mm-hmm. you know there's just the mm-hmm. way that we should be treating women period and it starts with men behaving differently, and uh, we need to own that. And we, I know that I try and live that, and uh, Matthew, their other father, does as well. Mm-hmm. That's great. You know, and I think that it's great that, that, that like, you started with, you know, like, owning you. It's like you didn't go like, oh, well, I, went, I, I sent her over to Aunt Mary, or, or I went and talked to my mom and then came back. And you owned where you were and then talked to them really from your heart. Yeah, and I'll, sorry, and I will say, I, I, it just you reminded me of something. They, we also are very intentional about them having dynamic women in their lives. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so as I'm saying this, you know, my children are isolated with two very strong-willed feminist men, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's also uh-huh. a, a dynamic village of uh, powerful women that surround them that also uh, support them and speak truths to, uh, truth to power. Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, we're going to take our first. I'm going to take our first break here on Collections by Michelle Ball, and then you know, I want to talk about how your advocacy has helped build that great community, that dynamic village around it. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. 
back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm speaking with Roland Leggett. Roland, you have a a long history of advocacy, and I know that when you started out in this, you didn't say, you know, one day I'm going to have, be a dad and I want to have a better world for it. You were looking at the world. And what was it that happened when you were in Chicago working for Obama for America that really said, you know what, I want to do this, but the place to do it is in Detroit? Wow. Well, I have to think about that, Michelle. It's a great question. Um, <laughs> um, well, you know what? I'm going to be, I'll, I'm going to be honest with you here. So um, when I lived in Chicago, I just wanted to kind of finish up some business that I had here in Michigan, and my family was here. And I was uh, working in retail primarily there, and so I thought, eh, if I come back to Michigan, I have better connections. I'll have a better chance of moving forward with this work. Um, but the thing that really grinded my gears that got me really entrenched here in Michigan happened years after I moved back here from Chicago. I just was outraged by the Flint water crisis. I just could Mm. not believe it. And at the time that it happened, initially I was a parent, and so I looked at it through a different lens than I would have looked at it when I was younger, I would have been angry when I was younger, but when you see children being poisoned as a parent, it's just a different thing. And so that really was when, that was my I'm coming for all of you moment <laughs> um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when it comes to advocacy work. And I remember, um, actually this is kind of a full circle story. So uh, I was in Washington, D.C. in 2016 when Governor Snyder was there testifying before Congress about the water crisis. And there was a a, uh, an, it still exists as an incredible organization in Flint called Flint Rising that was organizing residents um, and getting them information related to getting clean water and what they could do moving forward. Uh, they had no resources, no money, and it was just a ragtag group of really dynamic organizers from the area, and I happened to know some of them because of the work I was doing. And ended up in Washington for the, uh, for the hearings and uh, found myself in a group with two young men, I think one was like nine, one was maybe 12, and mm-hmm. uh, I think 12. And so uh, anyway, uh, we randomly were selected to be the ones that, and I don't think randomly, because I think they knew because I was in the group and my history was working in advocacy here, so I shouldn't say randomly. However, we ended up speaking with Danny Hoyer and with Nancy Pelosi. Um, and before we went into that meeting, we uh, we were in the underground subway below the uh, below Congress, and the boys were had been separated from their family. Their family was with another group, and so it was just me and them. And I was the only only other person of color in our immediate group. And the boys are very nervous. Long story, everybody. I apologize. The boys were very nervous, <laughs> and I was able to give uh, talk about my my kids and kind of calm them down a little bit. Talk about my background, calm them down a little bit. And we went to Stanny Hoyer's office. Stanny Hoyer is the number two in the House of Representatives. And the kids were nervous. I was able to say to them, please tell Mr. Hoyer what you told me. And for me, in that moment, I made a promise that I would do everything I could to do right by these kids that had been poisoned. And Mm -hmm. I felt that my purpose 
was I was meant to be in that room at that time so that I could calm those kids down and say, please tell them your story. And so that's really what got me really into it. And it's, it's interesting because I've been doing this for 20 years, but sometimes, you know, even mid-career, something can happen when you're like, I just have a different interaction with why I'm doing this. And so I'd say uh, to fast forward, you know, two years after that, I was standing at Motor City Soundboard uh, at the Motor City Casino for uh, the Democratic Victory Party and had some friends with me that were not particularly politically, they were aware but not involved in politics. And Gretchen Whitmer wins. And I turned to them and I said, my God, those people are going to, we're going to, we're going to be able to help them. Finally. Uh uh There's been so much, um, there's been so much, uh, the way that crisis has been held, has been handled is just horrific. And there has been so much pushback from the folks that are responsible for it. And so the idea that, you know, we went to Washington and I was working, Gretchen was working, so many other people were working and that we are now on the precipice of, people that care about people um, that are vulnerable in a, in, a, in a way that's different than we see currently, that those are the folks that will be handling the levers and making the decisions. It's just so heartening. Uh-huh. And it, it felt full circle because I thought about those kids when she won. I thought, well, finally, we've been able to do something to help them because she cares a lot. And so, you know, when we talk about the work that happens, of course, there's, there's a difference between right and wrong. Um, we, we agree for the most part generally on what those things are, but it's about the people. And when you're able to see something happen that you know directly will affect people that have been suffering, it's just an incredible privilege. And so I know your, your original question was like, what, what was it that brought me back? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a number of kind of diff, small different things. What's kept me here is the people of Flint. What's kept me mm-hmm. here is trans women of color. I think about trans women of color being murdered in horrific rates, particularly mm-hmm. here in the city of Detroit and Highland Park. They keep me here. They keep me mm-hmm. fighting because those are the folks that I think about uh, every day when I do this work. You know, Roland, you, know, you talked earlier, and, and this makes me, when you were talking about those kids, you know, there was a long period of time when, you know, pre-Obama, okay, when, you know, you wonder did our voice matter or anything. But you talk about how you were able to take your daughters there to the East Bay. And, and when you think about these kids from Flint, to not only see a black president, but to see other black people, people of color, many members of the LGBTQ community also, I mean, so this variety of people, not just, you know, and I'm not, you know, they're not all there, but not just older white men ruling, right. but you're seeing them getting elected doing this. Do you think that, does that give you personally, but then also, you know, like you, that we can come through this because these kids will have a different view. They're going to say, well, yeah, we went through that, but I saw this. I can be anything. Well, yes and no. So, you know, Michelle, I came from a generation in the 80s where, you know, particularly being raised in an upper-middle-class white suburb, you know, they told all of us that racism was over and that our generation was going to in- ensure that it was over. And so, you know, 30 years later, we're seeing that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And so what I think about 
what I think about is how, is how fragile the space is that we, that we create for ourselves when we're focused on justice and we're focused on helping other people. It is so important to remain vigilant. And so, yes, of course it was heartening to see um, uh, President Obama and, and uh, First Lady Michelle Obama in the White House, and it meant a lot to me uh, to be able to share that with my children. But, you know, I believe that Donald Trump was a white supremacist, and I'm always mm-hmm. going to say that. Mm-hmm. And he was the president after that president. And, mm-hmm. you know, what, regardless of how we feel about how the Russian investigation is going or, you know, how, who interfered with what, people voted for this man. Mm-hmm. And they knew who he was when they voted for him. And so there are so many examples of how bright our future can be how dynamic our people can be and how dynamic they currently are. There are so many bright examples. I love that Mr. Rogers' example, uh, 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 quote, look for the helpers. There are far more helpers than there are people that are causing mm-hmm. destruction. However, however, <laughs> we've got to mm-hmm. own that uh, the helpers, unfortunately, we've got to keep working. We've got to keep helping to ensure yeah. that we have the society and the, and the village that we want for our families mm-hmm. and for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that I was also very moved after that by, you know, and guess what? They're old enough to vote after the, the Parkland students. I mean, after yeah. after that shooting that, 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 you know, here's this, and also that these kids have grown up in families that might have one sister who's black. They might have a black mother, but white father. They might have all different ethnicities. They might have two dads, two moms. And it's sort of like that sort of says something. And here, like, like one of them said, you know, hey, they are old enough to vote, and many of them did vote. And yeah. so, you know, and I thought, wow, that's really, you know, the turnout for the midterm elections, even in Detroit. I mean, it made my heart feel so good to see, because I always said, you know, I had heard someone say, well, if it rains, you know, they're not going to come out in Detroit. We were out there. We were doing it. Yeah. Does that come from, in part, like you're talking about, and like you said, even though I see things happening in Midtown, in the neighborhood, I do see a lot of community coming. And you know that that, in part, these conversations that you're involved in, your neighborhoods, the work that you're doing, is that where we're starting to see a lot of community and people, I don't just want to say, okay, what's okay, what can I do in our neighborhood too? I'm sorry, Michelle. We, we had a bad connection there for a moment. Could you repeat the question? Okay. I mean, because, you know, things, sometimes things get bad. Do you see yeah. with the work that you're doing in the neighborhoods and, and the conversations that you're having is why, we're doing our own thing in our neighborhoods. I know you live in a community where, you know, it's not just happening in Midtown. It's happening differently in the neighborhood. Yeah. And is, is, that hap- is that part of this activism, this, this, the helpers stepping up to make, make change? I, I think it's the helpers uh, continuing to step up to make change. And I think that um, a lot of us, uh, view what is happening uh, around the country as an emergency situation and that it's, you know, it's time to put aside our differences and just make some real clear distinctions about what we stand for. Um, you know, either you're for children being educated or you're 
you know, not really either your four children um, that are bringing, uh, you know, a refugee crisis being supported and heard or your four putting them in cages. And I think that, mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately, we've, we've come to a space of such extremes that we've had to make some very difficult choices as a country and, and as individuals. And I think that you're seeing um, a lot of that happen. And I'll, I'll also share this with you. So, you know, one of the roles I have is I'm the, uh, the vice chair of the LGBT caucus for the Michigan Democratic Party. And I was a very strong supporter of uh, Hillary Clinton uh, in the 2016 election. And I had some very good friends that are that were Bernie Sanders supporters. And I say that now in a cheesy, my good friend on the other side of the, like <laughs> actual friends, uh-huh. and we, we go to brunch uh-huh. and stuff. Um, and so one of, uh, one of my friends is a huge supporter of Bernie Sanders. And we argued for like six months. Hillary loses. Everyone's devastated. And I remember having a conversation with her after the election. And I said to her, her name is Katie. And I said, Katie, you know, we have to ensure this never happens again. I said, could you do me a favor because she was really adamant that Hillary was not going to win. I said, you know, Katie, if you feel that way again and you're adamant about it, can you, fig- can you figure out a way to, to talk to me where I can hear you better and I will focus mm. on listening better because this can't happen again. And I think, you're, I think those conversations happened all over the country with people that are like-minded that agree on 95% of everything where we'll be see what happens when we remain when we get distracted and we're not organized. So many people, I think, are seeing this. You see it in Arizona, Alabama, places. We never, I, mean, I mean, I can't, you know, Beto O'Rourke, of course, didn't win his uh, election in Texas, but he came really close. Really close. Really close. You know, and I, and I, I think mean, it's these conversations. You know, and I was talking to someone who, who worked with Stacey Abrams, and she said how she went, to every county in Georgia and talked with people. And it's like what you're saying. It's like it had gotten to the point where it's like we were all supposed to be on the same team. But if you were a Hillary person or a Bernie person, we weren't talking. And that that part of listening. And, okay, first of all, how did that work out? And how are the two of you, I mean, having put that out there, because, you know, we're already talking about 2020, and I'm already starting to hear some of the same things. Well, you know, this time we're going to get Bernie in there. And he'll, you know, how are those conversations coming, and how do you see moving for 2020 that we get beyond that one personality or the other to what the issues are? Well, you know, I think it's about beating them at their own game. And so I'm going to, you know, Michael Moore already talked about this, so I feel uh, comfortable discussing it. Um, <laughs> you know, one thing that helped Democrats a lot in this last election was the fact that marijuana legislation was on the ballot in certain, city, in certain uh, states. And, you know, there's a theory out there that uh, one of the main reasons that George W. Bush won in 2004 was because there were so many marriage amendment bans uh, on states that were uh, strategically uh, uh, beneficial to him in terms of the Electoral College. And so I'm somebody that believes you should leave legislation to legislators. That's why they're, that's their job. No one, I would love it if I got to, you know, encourage people to vote on what parts of my job they could just do for me. It's <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of hard to do ballot initiatives. However, um, it's clear 
that when you put progressive issues on the ballot, that that brings progressives um, and a lot of moderates out to vote. And so I think that going forward, one of the things that's going to help to calm the noise that we had in the past is that we're going to be more strategic about how we get our voters to the polls. And, you know, I, I, it's difficult because I can't really, Michelle, you know, you're very well versed in politics and you, you've been, you know, you've been in Michigan for a minute now too. So you know how far the state has, uh, has gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I was trying to explain to someone the other day, I said, you know, it's incredible to me. I said, I can't underline how much this state is going to change for the better in the next 10 years. I said, the fact that we have, as a result of ballot initiatives, you know, yes, yay, yay, marijuana is legal. Um, but as a result of ballot initiatives that we have totally addressed the redistricting issue here in the state, that makes uh-huh. a huge difference. The fact that we have no reason absentee balloting and voter registration when you turn 18 makes a huge difference in the way in which Democrats and progressives can organize all over the state. And you're going to see that happen. I think over the next 10 years, this is going to be a very different place. And Michigan was considered to be, you know, 40 years ago plus, one of the most progressive states in the country. And I think that you're seeing another pendulum swing over leading the way um, in terms of some of those issues. And things like ballot initiatives, things like issue-based conversations as opposed to personality-based conversations, that's how you get Democrats uh, and progressives to the polls and uh, push them across the victory line. Um, you know, Gretchen, oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, I would think that, you know, sorry, probably you got your LGBTQ hat on I mean, and your political Democratic Party hat. The other thing that, that I think that I saw, too, is like, and what they did really well for other side was they ran people from everything from dog catchers so that they elected them from the doghouse to the White House. And we, yeah. this time we saw a lot of local elections. That's how we flipped the house. I mean, and you, but you see a lot of other people who are getting elected, you know, on city councils. And, I mean, you've got Beth Bashert, the mayor of Ypsilanti. We've got, you know, at, at these levels where a lot of change happens. So, yeah. you know, I mean, to me that, that's important also, you know, so that you get the people at the state legislature, we've got a little work to do there, that, you know, yeah. that, that that happens too. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, a really great example of someone that, uh, there's a lot of great examples in the legislature of folks that are focused on that type of work, you know. Uh, uh, Jeremy Moss. Jeremy Moss absolutely um, comes yeah. to, to, to mind. Um, well, first of all, I was going to talk about Rashida, but I'll go talk about Jeremy first. Mm-hmm. Jeremy is also someone that's a pragmatist, just a hard worker. And he mm-hmm. is not someone that is personality-based. He's got actually, he actually has a personality, really funny guy. But he's not, oh, yeah. he, has, but he, has the, he has the experience and he has the results to show um, you know, for what he's talking about. And I think that, you know, that's one of the main reasons that he is going to be the first openly gay senator uh, here in Michigan in our, in our mm-hmm. Senate uh, in, in Lansing is because it's about the work that he's done and about him putting his uh, money where his mouth is. And another woman who's an ally uh, is Rashida Tlaib. Thank you. know, you. Um, she absolutely, uh, she's, a, she's a dynamic state legislator 
Um, but, but beyond that, she's an incredible mother and a powerhouse activist. And, you know, I remember um, when I first met, uh, one of the first times I heard about Rashida was when she shut down the bridge entrance mm-hmm. in southwest Detroit as a result of the truck traffic. Um, you know, that's not someone that, uh, you know, that wasn't a press release <laughs> or a tweet. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was laying down in the street uh, in a truck entrance of an international border crisis, uh, crossing because you were concerned about um, the pollution levels in neighborhoods when children were playing and going to school. You know, I mean, and, one, and one of the first people who really brought that up, you know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I remember, you know, Gretchen, uh, our, our, our governor-elect, I remember when Right to Work was first being introduced in 2012, I remember her stand, or her, uh, I think she was like standing on a car hood with a bullhorn out in the cold and Lansing, talking about how we weren't going to stand for this, talking about what mm-hmm. was going on inside behind closed doors that Republicans are trying to do. This is a woman that was not, that wasn't a political point thing. That wasn't theater. She was really angry and pissed about what was about mm-hmm. to happen to Michigan workers and families. And she stood up against those forces. And now she's our governor-elect. So I think it really takes a focus on issues that people really care about. People really care about, you know, and people really care about their families. They care about their communities. They care about health care. They're concerned about health care. They don't care about health care. They're concerned about health care. Mm-hmm. They don't care about mm-hmm. their jobs. Not, they don't only just care about their job, but they're concerned about their jobs. And so when you have folks uh, that are running for office that speak to those issues, um, you see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I mean, I mean, I've, I've known Rashida, like, like you said, back from then. And I mean, I just, the fact that she's going to be there, I mean, it's just like phenomenal. Um, people like Jeremy who have been there, we've had so many people who've done that. And I have to say, I believe that the shout out from Patty LaBelle, when Jeremy was up on the stage kind of helped. I'm just saying. Oh, know? totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. But, you know, but the fact that there are... I think most things real, that happen in life that are good, she's done. Like, that with Patty I mean, really? <laughs> you know, and you get a patty pie, and you get a patty pie. Yeah, <laughs> then you, it's, you're, you can't lose. <laughs> I mean, you know, but I think that this is like, you see these people, they're such a part of the community. Jeremy is such a part yeah. of the community. Rashida, part, such a part of the community. And a whole lot of other people who went there that I think it's going to really make, make a difference and, you know, I'm just excited about it. We didn't get everything, but it showed that, no, we just didn't, like, we've had so many marches, but we're doing, the most important was we marched ourselves to the polls and elected yes. these people. So. Well, and Michelle, can I, can I add on to that? We've had mm-hmm. so many marches, and for so long that wasn't working very effectively. And mm-hmm. yes, we marched ourselves to the polls, but more importantly, we marched ourselves to our neighbors' houses and talked mm-hmm. about our families and how these issues and these policies were affecting our families. We marched ourselves to the Thanksgiving uh, uh, dining room table and had conversations with family members that disagreed with us about what it actually meant mm-hmm. to be, that you could be fired for being gay. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I... I 
March is just feels so good sometimes when it, when times are tough and you're frustrated. But you got to not only march to the polls, you got to march to folks that are on the fence. You got to march to folks that are apathetic. You got to march to folks that don't get it, and talk to them about what this really means when we're discussing some of these issues. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really how you move the dial. It's marching mm-hmm. together feels good, but we got to talk to folks that don't get it just yet. You know, I think that is one of the things that I often tell people, like the most important conversation is the one that you have over the fence in your yard, you know, yes. in the grocery store line. When you hear somebody maybe ignorantly make a comment like that they don't understand about a trans issue and just sort of stop them in their tracks and say something. And I think that that's one of the things your career, you know, in advocacy sort of took you like through all of these these paths with the ACLU and all like that to where you can stand in that spot. You know, you can talk about that and you can sort of say, hey, you know, this is what it means. If someone's talking about, oh, we're trying to take my guns away, you can say, you know, no, you know, there's chill. But also let's talk about neighborhoods and our families and what's doing it. You're a dad. Somebody can't say, oh, well, you know, uh, what, do you know what do you know about about kids. I've got two daughters. I'm concerned. The yeah. fact is what you talked about, that story that you told about Flint and the things that the people who I've talked about who've been engaged in Flint and anybody who has looked in Flint and isn't outraged at our children. I mean, we know when it, when it hit the news, but you don't know how long these kids have been affected by lead poisoning and it's not just going to go away. These are lifetime issues, and we have to be focused on this. And I think that, you know, that that is the thing that really grinds your gears. I mean, what what better, you know, what better, and who better to to do this? And, you know, that makes me so happy to know that you're you're in on that because you do so many other things. Um, Well, we're going to take our second break, and then the main thing I want to talk about are these bikes. I love these bikes. Okay, so we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back with Roland Leggett. You know, I was reading one of the things, and you talked about the things that you liked about, uh, you missed about Detroit, was Detroit Summer and Back Alley Bakes. And, you know, yeah. I don't know if you know, I was one of the, I was in, involved with Detroit Summer from the beginning. And No, one, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I was one of the, one of the I don't know, what does, what does Shane and I call ourselves? I don't know, the co-gangsters. <laughs> 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 
But we had these kids, and these kids came in, and it was the beauty of Detroit Summer. We were doing things. We did um, murals. We did community gardens. And kids were talking about how do we get back and forth. And at one point, you know, they started, like, with the bikes, and they had people donate bikes, and the bikes were sort of broken down, and then they'd fix the bikes and put them together and do it. And from that, eventually became Back Alley Bikes. And, you know, and the fact that people talked about it, one of the people who the original organizers had been this guy, Gerald Hairston, who had been, he knew the gardening angels, and he had really got us into community gardening. But Gerald went all over the city on his bike. And, and so, you know, I have this thing about bikes. I love bikes. I ride my bike as much as I can. Wish I could ride it more. And I have been to other cities. I've been to Toronto and seen bikes. I've been in Chicago and seen bikes. Then I ran into my friend who didn't have a French martini for me. And I said, what are you <laughs> up to? And you said, I'm doing MoGo Detroit. And how did that come about? And how did you see that as a natural fit or, or progression for your work in advocacy and your care about cities and communities? Well, you know, it's interesting. My, um, it, it came up, it's, it's been a long journey to it. So I first met uh, the executive director of uh, MOGO, of the bike share here. Uh, her, her name is Lisa Nuskowski. In 2009, at the height of the financial crisis, and I had just gotten a job with the ACLU, um, it's crazy to remember this, um, but I just got a job at the ACLU, and I think we were at an event, and I met this woman that was doing work on connecting folks that were, in, that were, that, that were either in foreclosure or had the potential to foreclosure to resources so that, so that they could stay in their homes, and that was Lisa Nuskowski. And so my first introduction to her was totally social justice-based, and then we have a lot of mutual friends, and so I'd see her throughout the years. Um, and then about two years ago, um, I was encouraged to apply for a fellowship called uh, the Detroit Revitalization Fellowship. And that's a community development fellowship um, where um, hundreds of applicants from all over the country apply to be connected to, that are mid-career professionals, uh, apply to be connected to community development organizations here in the city. And, you know, frankly, Michelle, uh, this was around 27, this was 20. I want to say the, the spring of 2017 is when uh, the application, or winter 2017, rather, is when the application process was beginning. And exhausted and demoralized after the 2016 election, I was looking for another way to continue the advocacy work that I was doing that wasn't so politically connected. It was more issue-based. And so applied for this fellowship and uh, was fortunate enough to make through all the rounds of competition and eventually was placed with MoGo. Uh, the bike share here in the city. And uh, the work that I do for, for MoGo, so we have um, over 400 bikes uh, in over 40 stations in 10 neighborhoods all over the city um, and, and, are, and are looking to expand into other cities in, in, in uh, 2019. But the thing that interested me most was the fact that I knew that the founder of the bike share had a real lens and focus on social justice issues um, and economic justice issues and racial justice issues. And that what was interesting is that there was a lot of potential to use bike share as a mechanism to connect folks that didn't have the funds to purchase a car or 
maybe, um, you know, the bus system was disconnected from them in a certain way. Using the bike share system is a way to address a lot of different issues. So potential gaps in transit from like getting from point A to point B and also for addressing real nutritional and health and wellness challenges that economically and racially isolated communities often have. Uh, so bike share um, has Mogo, for example, has done a lot of work with Mariners Inn and COTS um, mm-hmm. and Southwest Economic Solutions. So a lot of community-based organizations that, that, that interact with vulnerable populations. And so we use the bike share as a way to, help to support the programming that they're doing. And so I was really interested in seeing exactly how that worked. And so um, that's what my, my, my role as Director of Mobility Initiatives has been at Mogul for the last uh, just, just under two years. Okay, now, you know, people think of Detroit as the motor city. Now, I have friends in New York. I have a friend in New York who, who only uses public transportation and rides their bike. I mean, that's just it. You know, when it, and... In Chicago, you know, some people have cars, you know, but biking, you know, they, in fact, they built their big hub down, downtown where people can ride in and change. But, you know, often, like, when I talk to people, it's sort of like we still have that Motor City thing where it's like you got to have a car, you know. And, yeah. I, uh, and no matter what, I mean, sometimes we have better cars than we do homes. You know, we, we have that yeah. inbred in us, you know. You know, you got to have a car. You got to be able to go first thing. And my first car was, how has that been? A, but then we ended up at the point where we don't have public transportation. And like you said, you talked about the bikes, the buses were broken down. People couldn't get to and from. How did you? How is it being accepted by residents? About hey, this is another, a better way. Use a bike. Yeah, well, it's been incredible. The reception's been incredible. I mean, we've far surpassed our ridership goals for 2017, our initial year, and we're on track to do very well uh, in 2018 as well. But, you know, I'd say, Michelle, in all honesty, you know, I'm someone that hey, doesn't, it's, it's crazy. I'm a change maker, but I hate change. I'm like, you know, an old fogey <laughs> stuck in my way. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I'm always trying to change stuff, even though I hate change. And I think that you know, what needs to ha- what is happening, not what needs to happen, what is happening is that we're going from the motor city to the mobility city, and you're seeing um, a number of different mobility options uh, come uh, to Detroit. But you're also seeing, because of the automotive company, a lot of experimentation around autonomous vehicles and things of, the, of that nature. So mobility is just changing. The way we get around um, is changing, you know, just like the last 20 years, the way we communicate has changed quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just think you're seeing that happen here in Detroit. And, you know, there's a lot of challenges around that. And, you know, there's fits and starts. And some, some of the initiatives that are launched will work really well and some won't work as well. But, you know, we're definitely seeing, um, I think, a variety of different uh, mobility options uh, bubble to the top here. So I, I look at it as, even though I don't love change as much, <laughs> positive change. And, you know, we're, we're moving towards being more of a mobility city than the, mo- the motor city, I believe. Okay. Now, I, like I told you, I'm a bike nerd. Okay. Mm-hmm. I have a helmet. <laughs> I have a Good. helmet. Good. Okay. Good. Now, um, what are the safety issues? I mean, you know, anybody can go get a bike. I mean, are you, I mean, do you encourage people to, to, to you know, to, get, to, to be safe, you know, to have helmets? And, we do. You know, 
Mm-hmm. So we, there's a number of programs for folks. You know, I had, you know, a lot of us that are grown don't haven't ridden a bike in, especially here in Detroit, <laughs> haven't ridden a bike for like you know, 20 years or something. So mm-hmm. it can be a little daunting and intimidating thinking about getting on a bike. And so uh, there's a number of different things we do to encourage folks to get on bikes, but to also ensure that they're safe. And so we, yes, of course, folks to uh, encourage folks to uh, wear helmets while they're riding bikes. But uh, I think even more importantly and more, not more effectively, but, but more importantly, other than just encouraging folks to wear, wear helmets and be safe, we have street skills classes for folks that have mm-hmm. been off bikes for a few years or maybe are new to bikes um, where you really learn the rules of the road and best practices around how to be safe. Um, there's a, uh, a colleague of mine, Rory Lincoln, is like a road warrior when it comes to biking. <laughs> he, we, mm-hmm. we had a meeting yesterday in Midtown, so our, our office is in downtown. We had a meeting in Midtown, and he biked. It was like, I think it was like 30 degrees yesterday, and he biked uh-huh. from Midtown or from downtown to Midtown, and I was just like, dude, you are like a, like a warrior. I can't believe it. So <laughs> he's, the, he, uh, he's responsible for, for uh, administering a lot of our street skills classes, and they're, they're intended just to make sure that folks feel as comfortable as possible on bikes. And frankly, even for experienced bike riders, you know, it's always a great idea just to review um, exactly what all the rules of the road are and, you know, making sure that we're doing everything we need to do to, in order to, to stay safe. And, you know, the bike lanes we're seeing all over the city are making that a lot easier, but we still have to do our part as riders to make sure that we're uh, uh, in the safe zone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and with the police department and traffic police, I mean, are they – is there an education process that has to go along with them as you bring it in to say, you know, because I, I've ridden my bike in a bike lane and still had somebody hit me, you know. Um, oh. So, but, and the police were like, Ugh, and I said, no, I was in the lane. I'm, you know, I'm good, you know. But, yeah. I mean, has it had to been like, is there a cooperative thing? And, and knowing that you're bringing this, it, it is a business, this service, and not only are residents going to use it, but some visitors are going to use it. Has the relationship bro- worked out well? with the police department or motor vehicles to sort of help them help bikers? Sure, it has. And so, like, you know, I'd say really, you know, the mayor is very focused on and and talks a lot about all the different mobility options and um, that are, that are coming here to the city and and talks a lot about them, a lot about the mobility challenges too, that we have here uh, that still remain. And so we have a lot of conversations with the planning department, with, law enforcement, uh, the mayor's office around how best to navigate uh, this space. And there's also a lot of community organizations here that are focused on finding transit and mobility solutions for folks in their own communities around in neighborhoods around the city. And so there's a lot of voices around the table. I just think that, you know, because there are so much new technology and there are so many mm-hmm. new resources uh, that have come uh, forward here in the city that we're still to be honest, figuring some of this stuff out. Um, but conversations continue to happen, and, you know, I'm happy to see the amount of uh, uh, cooperation across the board that I have seen so far, mm-hmm. especially coming from a political background. <laughs> mm-hmm. so LGBT mm-hmm. focus. This is very different than trying to pass, you know, an LGBT civil rights ordinance uh, in a small mm-hmm. town somewhere uh, in the state. You know, there's a, a, a joint, uh, everyone is in, everyone's in agreement largely in the, in the direction we want to go in terms of mobility, um, equity and access, 
Um, but it's just a matter of figuring out exactly what that roadmap looks like. Are city planners, I mean, you know, in talking like with P, and I know because you said you're talking about going to new, obviously, are city planners like starting to add things like bike lanes and when, as they're saying like, oh, we're going to redo do this city or do a neighborhood. Are they thinking about these alternative mobility means? Um, they are, and I think they have been doing that for a, for a little while now, but I think that one of the things that is new is they're changing the way in which they interact with the community around the changes that are happening. So they're getting better at having conversations about what these bike lanes mean, what these different you know, right-of-ways mean, what uh, streetscape changes mean, all those things. And so the community, is be, they're doing a better job of bringing the community along with it so that when, implementate, when these things are implemented, um, folks have a better understanding of how to access it and how to navigate it. Mm-hmm. So the nuts and bolts, how does MoGo yes. work? Okay, I need a bike. <laughs> okay, so you need a bike. So there's a couple mm-hmm. of different ways that you can get one. So um, you can... Check one out at a kiosk, at any of our kiosks um, around the city. You can use a credit card to do that. Or if you want to pay cash, you can go to Family Dollar or 7-Eleven uh, to pay cash hmm. to do that. Um, there's also a couple of programs that we have going with DDOT. Uh, we also had one, a, a, a program with Lyft a while back where if you use one of those services, there's an opportunity to use a bike to kind of finish your trip or to start your trip. Um, hmm. So, yeah, so you can find more information about those programs on our website. But you can get a MoGo bike um, at a station um, using a credit card, or you can go to Family Dollar or um, 7-Eleven to purchase, purchase one for cash. There's also a couple different options if you are um, limited income. So if you receive state or federal benefits, you can get what's called an access pass. And what that does is for $5 a year, you can have an unlimited pass for MoGo rides. So what does that mean? What, what, um, so a mogul ride is a 30-minute ride. So mogul is intended because it's bike trip to go from point A to point B using the docking system. So you need to dock at another dock within 30 minutes. Um, and so um, any of those, uh, you know, by paying cash or using your credit card at a kiosk or um, going on our website and getting an annual pass, a monthly pass, or an access pass allows you to check out a bike for 30 minutes at one of our stations and then, uh, you have 30 minutes to get to the next station in order to avoid uh, overage fees. But it's just a great way to get from point A to point B, especially when you, you know, folks are kind of exploring downtown. It's a great way to kind of, you know, go on a little bit of an adventure um, and, and, and see what you find and not be kind of, and not be chained to a bike or responsible for parking a car and honestly, in the summertime, I used it to run to lunch so often. It's mm. a really great way to get out of downtown quickly because of the bike lanes that we were describing earlier. I'd often just mogo up Cass for 10 minutes and grab something in Midtown uh, just to get out of the hustle and bustle of downtown and then great workout to come back downtown on a nice uh, sunny day and redock the bike um, after, I grab, after, <coughs> excuse me, after I grab my sandwich. <coughs> uh-huh. So... Uh-huh any number of ways uh, to enjoy the system. But, uh, yeah, and all the things I'm describing right now, you can find out more about on www.mogodetroit.org. Yeah. So, you, um, so what do you see next for MoCo, and what do you see next for, for you as dad, as uh, a strategist, 
and as an yeah. advocate? Um, I think next for Mogo is really, um, and I'm biased, admittedly, <laughs> um, yeah. but I've met a lot of folks that do bike share around the country as a result of this role, and so I really see Mogo as being a, a, a mechanism for hopefully regional mobility change. Um, we have uh, incredible leadership at our organization and uh, folks that get it and have incredible vision. And so I really see us being more than just a bike share system, but really as a, um, in some ways, a canary in a coal mine uh, mm-hmm. um, about how we move forward and, and, and address some of these mobility challenges that uh, we see uh, regionally. And you know, I'd say as, oh, yes. uh, you know, because one of the other things that I've heard lately is about, what is it, it's other scooters that sort of kind of yes. operate on the same thing. Is that part of MoGo? Or is that no, it's, those are different companies, but it's, you okay. know, it's like, as I was saying, there's so many things that are happening now. It's about uh-huh. figuring out how do we address, I'm, I'm someone that always thinks there's, that thinks there's enough pie for everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's not about dividing something that's small. It's about, okay, there's enough pie. How do we get everyone a piece of pie? And so oh, okay. I think that, you know, scooters uh, address a, a specific need and have a specific client base, and just as bikes do, just as cars do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just about figuring out, okay, now everyone needs some pie. How do we get everybody some pie? Um, okay. So I think that's what we're going to see happen over the course of the next several years. Mm-hmm. Um, the other question is, you know, as a father, um, my youngest daughter's birthday is next week. So my next thing, big thing is how to survive a couple of hours at a bounce house park with a bunch of <laughs> 10-year-olds. Mm-hmm. That's my main thing. <laughs> and then Christmas is around the corner, too. So, um, But I... Uh, I'd say watching kids grow up is really heartbreaking, so getting over that is a big thing, too, for folks that aren't parents. It's an uh-huh. unexpected challenge that I have. I just, it's like, right, it's just heartbreaking. Like, you're not going to, you know, it's heartwarming to see them do well, but, you're, you know, your five-year-old is only five years old for one year, so it's just uh-huh. kind of a bummer when that's over sometimes. And then um, it's like the next time you get ready to go to, like, a dad. <laughs> right. Dad, and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I definitely, I have to say, I definitely have noticed that my nine-year-old is a lot less excited to see me now than she was when she was younger. <laughs> not like she's still excited, but just not as excited. So mm-hmm. notice that. Um, and then, you know, for myself, I have to say that the role that I have at Mogo has been an incredible opportunity Um and winding down the fellowship is only uh, for a certain amount of time, but I really see myself going back into focusing on politics and advocacy work full time. Um, mm-hmm. I think that we are in, even though the midterm elections were heartening for many of us around the country and, and certainly the top of the ticket here in Michigan did very well, I still believe that we are in an emergency situation and we need all hands on deck. And so mm-hmm. I want to do everything I can do to ensure that, um, families are protected, um, that the water in Flint is not only clean, but that the wraparound services those residents deserve happen around mental, mental health, education, uh, physical health care, all those things, um, and more. Uh, and that uh, particularly folks, you know, certainly the LGBT community is, is protected from uh, discrimination, but in particular that we really shine a bright light on how trans folks all over this country mm-hmm. are treated 
um, their lack of access to health care that's respectful, uh, their lack mm-hmm. of access to housing and employment, particularly the, mo- the, the trans folks that are the most vulnerable, um, very focused on doing that. And so I see myself, re- as I've gotten recharged uh, doing mobility work, reentering uh, into that work. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Detroit, as you think about Detroit and, you know, and, and love Detroit, Detroit, there's part of Detroit that, you know, people say it's a black city, but we aren't really. We're really like a multicultural. I mean, I, we have this history. Uh, I tell people, you know, well, we were talking earlier about creating change coming to Detroit, and I was talking to someone who was saying, like, you know, people who are, are coming here, we want them to know why they should come to Detroit. And I'm going, like, well, Detroit has been about change. I mean, people have always come here for change from people trying to escape slavery coming through Detroit on the Underground Railroad, the Northern Migration. I mean, there are as many people who came through the train station, which is now going to be a hub for innovation, but who came, who got off Ellis Island and came to Detroit for those jobs in the auto industry and knowing all the things that auto industry has done as far as changing, you know, workers' rights and civil rights. What would you want to say, having gone through all of this, about Detroit? You know, it's cheesy, um, but Detroit is a city of dreams, and I say that because, as you know, Michelle, Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech here first. Mm-hmm. And Detroit is a city of firsts. Um, the first middle class, <laughs> the first car, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the first automotive division. There's just so many things that have happened here first. And so it can be uh, it can be challenging to be the first person to do something, right? It's scary. It's new. It's untested. Um, but I feel that with the history we have in this city that it's clear we are a tested people that are up for the challenge. And so I would encourage all of us to look to the future with hope and uh, excitement because there are so many things that started here that have spanned the scope of the world. And so if we can get it right in Detroit, there's a really good chance that we can help a lot of other people all over the world. That's perfect. Roland, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Um, I look forward to raising a a French martini with you as you get ready to go on your, whatever your next venture is and, you know, and having more conversations with you. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. Okay. And you have a good holiday and enjoy it with those girls while they still want to do it with you. (laughs) (laughs) I know I will. And remember everybody, don't tell them I talked about them. They'll get really upset. Never, never, (laughs) never. (laughs) In fact, I'll give you, you know, I'll tell you about what minute marker it is. And you say, if they're around and listening, say, leave the room. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Thanks, Michelle. You bye everybody. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. I want to thank today's guest, social justice advocate and strategist, Roland Leggett. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, 
iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.